0: Hey everyone, this is Tam. Just a quick reminder that Jamie's next hearing will be next Monday, June 28th, at 9 a.m. Central Time via Zoom. If you're interested in attending, please shoot me an email at tam at snowfalls.net. As we continue to chip away at the upcoming blood trail episode, we hope you'll enjoy this Snow Files Rewind from Season 1. It's a great introduction, especially for new listeners, to Jamie's trouble with his trial attorneys. Episode 4, Nobody Bats a Thousand, outlines the issues with Jamie's appointed trial counsel, a stroke patient and a mentally ill alcoholic who went to prison after Jamie's trial for bilking an elderly client of her life savings. We'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new episode, Bad Blood, where we'll continue our forensic exploration by taking an in-depth look into the issues surrounding the blood evidence. You'll find yourself asking, once again, why not test the DNA? But for now, meet Pat Riley and Frank Pitzel through Jamie's eyes.
1: And sure enough, they came in there and they're like... We gotta get this together, you know. Tomorrow you're sitting, you know. We gotta get this together, and I'm like, why don't you just wing it? Just wing it like you did in my trial.
2: Imagine putting your life, your freedom, into the hands of a stranger. That's the dilemma defendants face every single day in the criminal system. When you're charged with a crime and don't have money for a private attorney, you get what you get. You get what the court, or in Jamie's case, what the judge says you get. And no matter how much evidence you put in front of them, how many times you write to the judge pleading for help, or how many times you ask your court-appointed lawyers to talk to certain people, or investigate a certain issue. You are at the mercy of that attorney. And if he or she doesn't believe in you, or doesn't care to do it, you're screwed. As evidence in the incredible story of Jamie's failed relationship with his court-appointed attorneys. Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department.
1: I figure a lot of people are gonna probably wonder, you know, how how can something like this happen? How how do these wrongful convictions happen? You know, a lot of things have to come into play, and the law says you're supposed to have good counsel, you're supposed to have counsel to to represent you to the best of their abilities, I guess. When I first got arrested, I had two attorneys from the McLean County Public Defender's Office, Amy Davis Johnson and Jim Tusek. You know, I know people probably think, oh, wow, you know, public defenders, you know, they are overworked. Too many cases and not enough time. There's this automatic stigma, I guess, around the public defenders. But I'm gonna tell you, the first time I met Amy Davis and, and Jim Tusick, when they came in and sat down and talked to me, I I was convinced I was in good hands. You know, Ms. Davis had looked me in the eye and she's like, you know, I cannot believe they even charged you with this. You know, she had been a, State's attorney one time and she was like you know I could never have uh, in good conscience charged you with this and you know I'm shocked that they charged you with it and I was like well you know they did and are they going to be able to convict me for this you know and she's like look I'm going to do everything that I can possibly do to make sure that that doesn't happen and I asked her I asked her I said well how many how many murder cases have you tried and she gave me a a pretty high number I said you know how many of you won and uh, she said none <laughs> you know so right then I was like oh Jesus you know and she was like hey wait a minute you know let me tell you something and she got a little defensive about it and she was like let me tell you something the majority of the time they get the right person and it's hard to to win a case when you have you know DNA and fingerprints and a confession and and, and all these things you know and She said, you know, in your case, they don't have any of that. You know, I I felt really good, you know. And and the first time that we went to court, the first time I went to court with her, oh, my God, she was in there filing motions like, you know, Edward Scissorhands in there trimming a bush. I mean, she was filing motions and she was arguing. And and I was like, damn, I, I felt great. It was right after that happened. She came to the county jail. She was asking for money from the judge to hire a, a private investigator and that they had reserved plane tickets. And the judge was like, well, what are you going to do? And she's like, you know, I don't want to expose my, you know, I don't think I should have to expose my strategy and open court in front of the state's attorneys. And she said, you know, I'll tell you this. We're going to, she held up the state's witness list, you know, the list of witnesses. And she's like, we're going to go interview everybody on this list. Everybody's on this list we're going to go talk to them. And the judge said, okay, I'll take it under advisement. The next thing I know, Amy Davis is at the county jail telling me that the state had filed a motion to have her disqualified as my attorney because she had represented one of the jailhouse informants that was testifying against me at Palumbo. So she had me sign a waiver saying that, you know, I was waiving any. Potential conflict of interest that there may be and uh, we got into the courtroom and the judge didn't care he was just like well you know you represented this this other guy there may be a potential conflict and miss davis was like look i've gone through all my records i've gone through all my files mr palumbo and i never talked about this case there is no conflict and the judge is like, well, you know, she's like, look, you know, I don't even have to be in the courthouse. I don't even have to be in the courtroom. Mr. Tusack can, can take care of Mr. Palumbo when he comes up. The judge wouldn't go for it. And he disqualified her. He kicked her off and disqualified the whole public defender's office. I asked the judge, I'm like, okay, you know, what, what, what now? The judge tells me, well, this is a, a death penalty case, so the lawyers have to be death penalty eligible. Attorneys, in other words, they've had to have tried a murder, a, a death penalty case to a jury verdict a number of times. How I many ever times it was, I don't remember. But they they had to try a case a number of times in order to be eligible. He said, "There's only, you know, there's only a handful of them here in in, in McLean County, so I'm going to reach out to them." And he said, "And this is important." He said, "I'm going to send all of them a copy of the discovery materials." so that they can go through it and make sure that they don't know anybody so we don't have another situation like this pop up. So I'm like, okay. It was a few days, maybe, I don't know exactly, maybe a week or so later, he calls me back in and he's like, I found you an attorney. His name's Chief Patrick Riley, and he's from Eureka, Illinois, and he's setting up a visit to come see you the next day or two. So I asked the judge, I'm like, okay, so he's got a copy of the discovery material, because at that point, I hadn't seen anything. I didn't know what was going on. I wanted to see what the discovery materials were and he says no he said i'm i'm getting that together for him now i wish i would have caught it at the time i mean in in hindsight you know i would have said wait a minute you know you you said you're sending all the discovery to all these lawyers to make sure there's not a conflict what do you mean you haven't sent more? and and in hindsight i would have asked you know okay what lawyers are death penalty eligible in mclean county which ones have you reached out to but hindsight is, I guess, 2020. But when I met Pat Riley a day or two later, I, I, I think I, I, I realized um, why they picked him. It was unbelievable. I mean, Pat Riley, in a first-degree murder case where the death penalty was still on the table, was, was chosen to be my lead attorney. And he'd had a stroke a month prior. I mean, he had had a stroke a month a month prior, and this isn't, this, I'm not making this up, this, this is for real. And you could tell. I mean, he was affected by it. The meeting was so troubling to me the first time I met him that I went back to my cell. I hung my towel up over my window, I shut the door, and I got on my bunk and I covered up and I myself to sleep. I mean, I cried like a baby because I knew, you know, at that point, I'm like, oh my God, you know, what is going on? Maybe a month later, he comes in and and tells me I've got this other lawyer. He's from Peoria. His name's Frank Pitzel. And he said, you know, he's a real good lawyer and and, you know, he's going to come on board. He's going to help out, right? So Frank Pitzel shows up now, well, Frank Petzl looked the part. I mean, he had he had the air dressed the part. He looked the part. He sounded like a good lawyer, you know? And, and I was like, okay, all right. Maybe this is going to be all right. Well, it was, he was as bad, he hadn't had a stroke, but he was as bad as that as Riley was, as it turned out. But, uh... They both came to visit me once, and I was like, okay, what, what, what are we going to do? What's, what's our strategy? And they were like, look, Susan's getting ready to go to trial. If Steve Skelton is even half the attorney that we think he is, you know, some of these these um, witnesses are going to be damaged beyond belief. They're not going to be able to use them. So, you know, there's there's really no sense in, in uh, you know, talking or doing anything until Susan's trial's over. Which, again, in hindsight, I look back on that and I'm thinking, you know, that's bullshit. They should have at least been out interviewing my witnesses, turned out by the time I got to trial. Not only did they not interview any of my witnesses, but they didn't interview any of the state either. As soon as Susan's soon trial was over and she had been found not guilty, which, by the way, Pat Riley got paid like, I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars by the McLean County taxpayers to sit in on. Susan's trial and just listen. You know, when her when her trial was over, I was like, okay, what are we gonna do? I start writing some letters. And I'm like, okay, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? You know, who? You know, what's what's what witnesses do you think are damaged beyond you know use? And and they just blew me off and was just blowing me off and blowing me off. It got to the point where it was right before my trial was to begin, and I, I'm almost positive it was it was Thanksgiving night of 2000 and I called Frank on the on the phone and he was smashed I mean he was he was drunk you know and I told him on the phone I was like Frank you know I'm, I'm really worried about what we're gonna do you know I, I don't know what the strategy is I, I, I don't know what you guys are gonna do I said I'm, I'm, I'm really worried that you guys are not gonna be um uh, ready to try this case. I mean, I, I was set to go to trial in, you know, a couple of weeks. He flipped out. He just flipped out on me and started yelling and screaming and cussing at me. And so I, 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 just, I just hung the phone up, you know? And again, one of many times I, I went back to my cell and um, I hung my, my, my towel up over my window and I shut the door and I, I covered up. You know, I, I called myself to sleep again, you know? The very next day, frank showed up at at the county jail like nothing had happened and we were in the visiting room and i was looking him in his eyes and i had the state's witness list on the table in front of me and i just i was looking him in 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 the eyes and i just ran my finger down the list and i stopped on somebody you know and i was like frank can you can can you tell me who this witness is what they're going to testify to and and how you're going to deal with it and he he just flipped out again you know I'm the lawyer you're the defendant I don't have to tell you nothing you know you don't ask me no questions you know and 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 I mean he was just he was just flipping out on me so I just pushed the button and let him know we were time to get you know we were ready to go and, and went back to my cell and, and, and did my routine you know I hung that I hung that towel up over my window and I cried myself to sleep and uh I remember at that time, you know, I, I was I, 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 was in such a state of uh, fear and confusion. I just, you know, I, I just believed at the time, you know, I was like, okay, you know, these lawyers are not ready, you know, but I didn't do this at the end of the day. No way they're going to be able to convict me for this, you know. But when it was time to go, the state had filed a motion to all my witnesses because my attorney had failed to turn in a they didn't turn in a witness list pat riley told me we don't have to turn in a witness list until the day we're ready to pick a jury which clearly wasn't wasn't right they blamed it on me like i'm supposed to know criminal procedure and i had no idea the judge banned all my witnesses in the the beginning i went into court and i told the judge you know in open court i'm like look judge i don't think these guys are ready you know i'm afraid they're not going to be ready and he, he asked them both, you know, hey, you know, Mr. Riley, how much time have you spent with Mr. Snow uh, in, in, in the jail? He gave him a number, I think, like 30 hours. Frank Pitzel gave him a number of like 50-something hours, you know, and the judge is like, oh, that's 80 hours. You no, know, that's more than most lawyers put into a case like this prepared with a defendant. That's plenty of time. After I was tried and convicted, and I ended up filing some post-trial motions alleging their ineffectiveness, you know, I I got the sign in and sign out book, And uh, I showed that, you know, they both lied. They both lied about the amount of time they'd spent with me, but it was was too late at that point. And I mean, it just didn't just fudge the numbers a little bit. I mean, they they fudged them up big time. And there came a point in time when I, the time in my case when I realized that these lawyers, you know, that i just i knew i just knew i was doomed right it had to be a miracle on the on the level of moses parting the red sea for me to be found not guilty came when the state had arrested their case and frank and pat and i went into a back holding cell to go over the witness list and it was when we. Began going over that witness list that i knew i was doomed the point when i i realized i was doomed is is when we went into this room and started going over the uh the witness list you know frank pitzel said okay who is mark foster and what is mark foster going to testify to i was like what do you mean who's mark foster and what's he's going to testify to you don't know and he was like you know look you know we we, we gotta we gotta get this together we gotta put on our, our defense you know you so who is he? And this was the number one first witness on my list. I said, Mark Foster is the investigator for Susan, for Steve Skelton. Mark Foster's gonna testify that he went to talk to Danny Martinez before he'd ever identified me, and that Danny Martinez told him, I saw the picture of the guy they arrested in the paper. That's not the guy I saw, they got the wrong guy. If I ever see the guy again, I'll be able to identify him, but that's not him. Now, Mark Foster went and told Steve Skelton this. Steve Skelton notified the state that he was going to call Danny as a defense witness. It was then that the state, when the state found out that they were going to call Danny as a defense witness, it's when the state called him down to their office for this, this made-up trial press interview when he, he finally identified me after all these years. This was a sequence of events. This is how it happened. After I'd been convicted, Steve Skelt came to see me in the county jail after, right before I got sentenced, or maybe after. And he was just like, look, you know, I I wish I would have never sent Mark Foster to talk to Danny Martinez. Because had he have never sent uh, Mark Foster to talk to Danny Martinez, they may have never called him a witness. But as soon as he got that statement from him, they had to flip it. So Mark Foster went back and talked to him again. And Danny said, look, I got to tell you something off the record. This is, what I'm, this is what I'm telling Frank Pitzel and Pat Riley. He went back to talk to him a second time, and Danny told him, look, I got to tell you something off the record. I identified Snow. And Foster testified in Susan's trial that, you know, he was kind of taken aback by it because he just told him a couple of days earlier. It's definitely not Snow. And he said that Danny told him, look, my understanding, they've got a lot of evidence against this guy, so he must be the right one. Frank Pitzel tells me, I can't call him. And I said, what do you mean you can't call him? And he said, I didn't lay the foundation for his testimony. And I'm like, I don't know nothing about no foundation, and and I'm not going to use the exact language that I did, but you can all imagine what I was saying to him. What the heck do you mean? You can't lay the foundation. He said. Once I let him off the stand, I can't. I let him off the stand. I can't lay, lay the foundation. Now, I know now that was a lie. He could have recalled him and, and laid the foundation, but he didn't. Which basically is, he had to ask Danny Martinez, "Did you tell Mark Foster this?" and let Danny say yes or no. Anyway, so the next witness was Billy Hendricks. Billy Hendricks was a coworker of Danny's, and. Billy Hendrix was going to testify that, you know, he used to ride back and forth to work with Danny. He worked with him. He knew him He grew up with him. And that Danny had told him, it's not Snow. You know, it's not Jamie. And had told him multiple times that it wasn't me, that he'd seen somebody, but that it wasn't me. Right. And Frank Pitzel said the same thing. I can't use him. Uh, I didn't lay the foundation at that point. There was a, there was a deputy standing outside the door. You know, I got extremely animated. I jumped up off of the bench. And I, I used a few swear words, I'm sure, and was, you know, what in the do you mean we can't call him? You're you're killing me. You know, I I, I was freaking out. You know, I'm like the deputy came in. He's like, come on, Jamie, you know, come on. And I'm telling the deputy, I'm like these, these dudes are trying to kill me, man. And and it was at that point, uh, it was at that point that I knew. It was over with. God was going to have to raise the dead. He was going to have to part the Red Sea. He was going to have to turn the water to wine. It was going to have to be some sort of a miracle like that in order for me to win. And, you know, it ended up coming down to, because they didn't lay the foundation for any of my witnesses. And what and, and and is so troubling to me, and I, it should be troubling to everybody, is that the courts seem to think that Not calling Mark Foster to impeach Danny, and not calling Billy Hendricks to impeach Danny, was some sort of a trial strategy. When Pat Riley got paid thousands and thousands, like ten or fifteen thousand dollars, to sit in on Susan's trial and see these people called as witnesses, and she's found not guilty. And then what? You don't do anything that Steve Skelton did. I mean, what was the point in sitting in on the trial anyway? I mean if you weren't going to use I, I I feel like he was sitting in on the trial to see what not to do. So before I get sentenced, you know, I'm raising these motions, trying to argue, argue to the judge, you know, how ineffective they were. And I was doing it at the time but I didn't even have all the discovery materials. Pat and Frank didn't even give me all the discovery materials. I didn't even know all the other stuff that they actually had that they had you know, that they hadn't laid the foundation for. You know, it basically came down to I had to rebut the whole case. I had witnesses that would have contradicted or would have impeached every single witness who testified against me at trial. Every single witness. Like someone testifying that I was making incriminating statements while someone else was there. Well, those someone else people were ready to come in and testify that, no, that never happened. My attorneys never talked to them. They never laid the foundation. They, they, they never got to testify, so I had to get up on the stand, and basically it was my word against everybody's. So when I was trying to argue the ineffective Assistance counsel by myself, you know, I was in a courtroom and it was me against two state attorneys, two defense attorneys and the judge, trying to argue how these guys had just screwed me over. And the courts seemed to think, hey, that's okay, it's all good. If I would have had, it wouldn't give me an attorney to argue that, but if I would have had the money to hire one, could have hired one that would have came in and argued for me on, on behalf of that, that post-trial motion. But what really is crazy is we find out just a few years later after I'm, I'm sentenced and given a natural life sentence, which by the way, Frank Pitzel and Pat Riley put together this sentencing uh, you know mitigation hearing, you know, which took, I don't know, maybe an hour, hour and a half, maybe an hour and a half. Uh, I ended up with natural life. We find out years later. I'm reading a newspaper. I can't even remember exactly how I found out about it, but I think I was reading the newspaper. I see Frank Fitzel gets arrested. And he's in you know, he's he's on his getting get ready to go to prison. My my, my trial attorney Frank Fitzel ends up to ten years for stealing three hundred thousand dollars from a client, an elderly client who thought of him as a son he stole all our money and gambled it away and we find out in his sentencing hearing he got 10 years which took you know like three days by the way you know his sentencing hearing took like three days mine took like an hour and a half we find out that he was suffering from mental illness at the time of my trial he was he was bipolar wasn't taking medication he was addicted to gambling had a gambling addiction and he was, a, he was an alcoholic, a raging alcoholic, too. He testified that when he drank, it wasn't just, you know, a, a drink or two. He drank eight hours straight. He would drink for eight hours. So imagine he's getting off at, you know, let's say four o'clock during my trial and drinking until midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And the courts, you know, they, they just gloss over that. It's, it's like, uh, yeah, okay, whatever. So when you think about how can these sorts of things happen, how can wrongful convictions happen, that part of it, a huge part of it has to do with your your counsel. The state, they, they, they withheld, I mean, we find out now, I mean, they, they withheld so much evidence from Pat Frank, it wouldn't have mattered. They could have gave him everything, and I don't think they would have, they would have easily, they don't, I don't know if they would have seen it or they'd even used it. It was the perfect storm. I had I had a couple prosecutors and a couple detectives who were hell bent on convicting me for this and I had a couple hand picked attorneys who probably shouldn't have been trying a traffic case. I had Amy Davis and Jim Tusick of been allowed to stay on the case, I I, I believe with my whole heart, I, I wouldn't be here right now. So, that's just a little insight for you about how this has happened. This 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 is why Danny Martinez was able to testify to seeing someone in the parking lot when, you know, the evidence shows he didn't see anybody. You know, Frank and Pat didn't impeach Danny with it, didn't impeach Jeff Pelo, didn't impeach Paul Williams, and, and the list goes on. So, as, as we go through this, I just wanted to get this out of the way for you guys so that you could have a little insight or a little idea of how a wrongful conviction will this takes place. It, it, it's a group effort. It ain't just the prosecutors and, and the detectives, you know. When you've got terrible counsel, it's a recipe for disaster. If only I could have got Amy and, and, and Jim. I, I think I wouldn't be here right now, so.
2: In Jamie's post-conviction appeal, Judge Connect questions Pitzel's effectiveness during oral arguments in appellate court.
3: What do we do about, uh, I mean, this is a case with 56 witnesses, Uh, no forensic evidence, we know something post-trial about defense counsel's difficulties. We know more now. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: So the defendant was represented by someone who generally is viewed as capable but had suffered a stroke So that limited his ability to communicate. And the other individual we now know, even though we knew then that there may have been some issue, we know that he was an almost adult life alcoholic with a deteriorating personal situation, daily drinking bouts, inattention to cases. And while he said, well, all I have to do in the courtroom is react, Trying a case as a judge with 56 witnesses would be extremely difficult. Being the attorney who has to pay attention to how they are examined and cross-examined would be an extraordinary arduous task. Why isn't that coupled with some of the things that the defense is able to point to? Why doesn't that make us think there was ineffective rep- representation, or at least we ought to go further with that?
4: Well, their major claim is that the defense was only prepared, which is something that was totally rejected by the trial court who looked through the billing statements that they submitted to be paid. And the fact that Bradley might have had it possible, I'm not sure what his impediment were in terms of speech, but he was still responsible for preparing. And he had hired investigators. And that Pickle was the important attack dog. And he was in court. He was able to do what was an excellent job, according to the trial court. Uh, that's that's the trial court's view of the performance was excellent, and there was no showing of impairment during trial. And the affidavits talk about how, pre-trial, this is not during trial, two to three alcoholic drinks during lunches. After the case already went to the jury, then he also had like a, a couple of drinks, I think maybe, and then their question came back from the jury. So it's not like a situation where there was massive amounts of alcohol consumed. During the trial or before the trial or anything? Well,
3: except now there's substantial reason to believe that that's probably not true.
4: Well, that was all that Maureen Kevin had seen, and, and there was no indication. Well, that's
3: what it was. I mean, we know from, I mean, defense counsel, when he, when he is talking to the court in relation to his own sentencing and disbarment and the people that examined him, they're not trying to do anything to help with a claim of ineffective assistance at counsel in an old murder case, Mm -hmm. they're being attempting to be objective regarding the fact that this guy is is an alcoholic who has basically lost his life, lost his practice, and was mentally impaired. Not only is he an alcoholic, he has mental illness issues, and that these go back to dates preceding the trial.
4: May I believe you respond to that, Your Honor? Yes, please. Uh, well, essentially, he did have problems with alcohol during the general time frame, but unless they're taking they points, definite uh, showings of impairment during the trial or preparation that affected their, uh, the, the actual representation. And they just haven't made that claim, especially when the trial court has already resolved this issue uh, adversely to him. And so essentially, that's my response to your question. Does the panel have any other questions? Like Seeing none, to, thank you. I'd like to thank you, Your Honors, and request the court to affirm.
2: We heard Jamie making a very strong case that he received ineffective assistance of counsel. Jamie was fighting for his life and was forced to go to trial with an incompetent attorney let's go over the information he provided and discuss some of the questions people might have. Now, Tam, let's start with the death penalty question. Was this a death penalty case to begin with and why was that ever taken off the table before trial began?
0: Yes, it was a death penalty case initially and we don't know why they took it off the table, but we do know that when it was taken off the table, he lost his resources. He had multiple attorneys working on the case, including John Hanlon, who was from the uh, appellate defender's office, who worked on death penalty cases and defended death penalty cases, who is now the director of the Illinois Innocence Project. And he did a fantastic job while he was on the case. He had investigators. He had a mitigation specialist. They had paralegals and they had resources. Well, those go away when the death penalty was taken off of the table. John Hanlon was from the area, so I'm sure that they were very familiar with John Hanlon's work. But he was left with one one investigator, and then he had Riley, who had had a stroke, and Pitzel, who we know now, was an alcoholic with a gambling
2: addiction. Right, not a great defense team, as we, <laughs> we're gonna be talking about here today. Right. There was a pretty unique situation after the trial concluded uh, before sentencing. Jamie was arguing against his lawyers about ineffective assistance of counsel. Let's go over that a little bit because that's something that you don't normally see.
0: Well, he had lost all confidence in his attorneys because of their failures in court. I think that, you know, as as he explained it to me, he was trying to get representation to preserve the issues that he thought needed to be preserved and be on the record. He said that motion is a very common motion after a trial. So that's what he was trying to do. And he didn't have confidence in his attorneys to do it. He had sent a couple of letters to the judge and did a radio show and talked about how ineffective his attorneys were before his sentencing And that really pissed Riley and Pitzel off. So they ended up filing a motion as well.
2: (laughs) So So there was a lot of tension there.
0: A lot of tension. So the judge ended up hearing at the same time, hearing their motion to withdraw as counsel and Jamie's motion to get new counsel, you know, because they were ineffective.
2: I mean, as we see now with all the information we know, we can understand why Jamie was frustrated. It's interesting that the attorneys were taking a stand against Jamie. I mean, they should have known that they were ineffective. I mean, it's not, they knew what they were doing. I mean, they knew that their behavior sucked.
0: And you can read in the that motion, we'll post it online, you can see the tension. You can just tell that there was a lot of tension between them. And Jamie outlined it. All of the witnesses that, you know, we know so much more now, but these witnesses that he was trying to get on the stand as rebuttal witnesses were very important witnesses. And we especially know that now, but he must have had such a, he had a really good instinct on that because he was calling out the right people. Go interview this person, go interview this person, go ask them some questions. And it's very frustrating to read that motion because he just could not get relief. The judge denied both of those motions outright. So they remained his counsel through his sentencing hearing.
2: And we have all of that information available. Yes. Now we're looking at, it wasn't a death penalty case, but the state still spent a large amount of money on the defense. Uh, It looks like $75,000 was spent. And only 20 hours of time was spent with Jamie in total with these defense attorneys. How did that happen?
0: Well, the, I mean, the $75,000, that's what we saw actually on a Panograph newspaper clipping. I think that was, you know, for a lot more than the 20 hours of time that they spent with them. However, they did bill specifically for that time that they spent with them and they billed them between 50 and 80 hours. And it was actually between January and December of 2000, Riley had spent 5.56 hours with Jamie and Pitzel had spent 16.85 hours with him in jail. And that comes from the login book and in that motion we were talking about, they determined that the time was accurate in the hearing. The court just let it slide. They called it an administrative error, and that was it. Like, they just, that stuff happens. <laughs>
2: <It laughs> they just brushed it off.
0: They just, they just, yeah, they just brushed it off. But, uh, you know, Incredible. Jamie's argument in that hearing was like, you know, you need to understand that they're lying to the court. He was arguing them being prepared.
2: Right. That and, was his argument. He was making a strong argument.
0: Yeah, he was he was trying to make that argument. And he actually got the people in jail because they denied it at first. And he was like, well, I'm going to get those logs because they were even asking him in court. How did you get those logs? And he said, well, I asked the people in jail for them."
2: During sentencing, Jamie ended up getting natural life without the possibility of parole. The more common sentence in cases like this is usually a 60 year sentence with the possibility of parole. So why was Jamie sentenced to that more harsh sentence?
0: Well, the the sentencing guidelines in Illinois for that crime would be between 30 to 60 years. But the court may, in air quotes, may make a judgment call to extend that based on criminal history. And also at sentencing, you're allowed to bring in your juvenile record. I don't know if a lot of people know that. But you are. And the judge stated that he made a judgment call and uh, he didn't back down from that. And there was a motion to reconsider the sentence that outlined these issues. But he didn't back down. He told Jamie at his sentencing hearing that he could not be reformed.
2: I didn't know you could bring the juvenile stuff in. That's ridiculous to me, but that's you learn something all the time.
0: He may have had a record, but there was no record of violence. He had just never committed a violent crime. Right.
2: No history of violence at all. No. Leslie, uh, Jamie mentioned a couple of times that Pitzel flipped out on him, yelling, screaming, cussing. Was he like that at trial? Did he lash out like that in the courtroom?
5: Well, besides being ineffective and not calling witnesses, not researching how to question them, he was a bit confrontational, and perhaps the jury didn't take kindly to it. There are a few examples when he was a bit rude. With Martinez, he asked about the lineup, and he says, what was the problem with the darkness? And the answer is, it was just kind of low where I was standing at. And Pitzel continues to question him in rapid succession. And he says, but you weren't looking where you were standing at. You were looking through the window at the men in the lineup, weren't you? Well, why didn't you pick out my client? He was standing in the lineup. Did you have your eyes open all the time? You don't have anything wrong with your eyes, do you? I don't see you wearing glasses. Are your eyes okay? Were they okay back on this night? And I mean, I like it. I think he deserved it. But I don't think that the jury liked that very much. He also did it again to Carlos Luna, who also claimed to see the suspect. Uh, He asked, so you saw this man walk 10 to 15 feet, right? He wasn't running. How long did it take him? Five seconds to walk 10 to 15 feet? Was he limping, using a cane? And it's just this attitude that he was trying to imply that Luna was stupid. How Jamie had mentioned before that if if the guy's walking 10 to 15 feet for 10 to 15 seconds, it's slow motion. So Pitzel was just on him about that. And he could have asked him if the man was walking slowly or very slowly or if he was disabled, but he didn't. And instead he made Luna estimate 15 feet in front of him in the courtroom in front of everybody and then get him to say it could have only taken five seconds and the entire exchange was pretty rude. And he also made a grave error in laying the foundation with Danny Martinez that he didn't know the man he saw was even the shooter. So he didn't actually see him shoot Bill a little. And in fact, when Martina says the guy was five foot seven, Pitzel dramatically responds to the court. What do you think of this fact? My client is six foot one inches tall. What do you make of that? And although that sounds pretty powerful, like a made for TV moment, it got thrown out immediately with an objection because Pitzel didn't prepare for that. Apparently, Jamie's height wasn't ever admitted into evidence. So Pitzel wasn't supposed to say that. He should have had a visual display of Jamie's height versus Martinez's showing how they weren't eye level and that he could not have matched Martinez's composite. But instead, he winged it with a rude comment. He sounded aggressive and he couldn't focus on the fact that Martinez did not see Jamie Snow or anybody at all. Uh, His weakness and arrogance probably didn't go over well with the jury, especially during a a murder trial.
0: I love that you mentioned All of that, Leslie. In Susan Claycomb's trial, Skelton, I mean, it's like night and day. He was respectful. He didn't do that kind of damage. I just don't think that Pitzel was very, very likable. And there wasn't really anything bad about Danny Martinez. From the jury's point of view, he was just a guy sitting there airing up his tires. They must have been thinking, why are you dumping down his throat? (laughs) What you said about him saying, did you see him shoot him? That comes up over and over and over. Sometimes that is just his main thing. You know, instead of discrediting someone, he constantly goes back. Well, did you see him shoot him?
5: Well, yeah, you're kind of throwing out to the jury that perhaps Jamie was the guy he saw. And if you didn't see him shoot him, how can you say that he is a murderer? You know, that's taking it really too far. Because nobody said they saw Bill get shot. Exactly. So yes. why why is he even, you know, giving the inkling that maybe, it, you know, it's a uh, complication. Like you didn't see the guy pull the trigger, so you can't testify to that.
0: Nobody was testifying
5: to that. Except for the defense. <laughs> we know that. Yes. <laughs>
2: So what are some of the specific details that Pitzel neglected to do at trial that were brought up in Jamie's appeals?
5: Well, from what you've already heard in other episodes, Jamie explained in his post-conviction relief petition that Pitzel failed to discredit Martinez's testimony and get him to relent that it wasn't Jamie he saw that night. He had access to Officer Pillow's interview transcripts, police reports, radio tapes, and Officer Williams' side-by-side version of the same events while he took the stand, but he didn't use any of it. He failed to even file a motion to suppress Martinez's weak identification of Jamie, as was attempted in Susan's trial. He didn't even ask the original lead detective on the stand about Martinez not being able to identify Jamie during the original investigation. And he didn't ask Martinez about how the victim's mother was calling him at home and pressuring him to help close the case, even though Martinez complained about that to cold case detectives in his taped interview. So these are all things we talked about in the first two episodes. And it's just clear that Jamie's defense did not study the material.
0: But Leslie, when you were talking about the things that he didn't bring up, when I was looking over material to prepare for this... Uh, I read Ma- Maureen Kevin's affidavit. Now, she was a mitigation specialist with a very highly qualified that was working on the tapes. And I had mentioned before that she had, she had listened to a, a bunch of the tapes. And in her affidavit, she said that as part of her work, she listened to a bunch of phone recordings from Bill Little's mother to the police, urging them to get Jamie Snow. And she also stated that Miss Little called Juan Luna and was pressing him to identify Jamie Snow. I have never heard those tapes. But if she had knowledge of them, that was something else that he didn't use, which is just incredible because she was handing everything over to him. But we need to find those tapes, y'all.
2: That's very interesting to me. I didn't know anything about that.
0: I know.
5: Especially because Juan was never called at trial. I mean, this is grounds for him to have been called. I wonder if if she means
0: Carlos. I don't know. But people do get them confused.
2: Well, Juan's another mystery for me, too, because he's obviously an, an adult now. And I'm amazed that there's been no statement from him ever. Yeah. You know, it's, I understand it when he was a child, it's a little bit different, but a lot of time has passed now. I'd I'd really like to know what he has to say. Me too. I don't know if that'll ever happen. We'll, we'll see. You know, Leslie, after listening to Jamie, uh, we know that Pitzel has a lot of personal problems and had a lot of personal problems at the time of the trial, including alcoholism and mental illness. How did those things affect him during his performance in court?
5: Well, Pitzel was a functioning alcoholic. He stated in his sentencing speech for his own criminal trial that he would drink for four to ten hours a day and go right from court to the tavern. So he didn't have to deal with his personal problems at his office um, or at home. So he wasn't slurring or falling asleep at the table, but Jamie said he did reek of alcohol. His secretary, Shirley, did testify that his professional performance at the time was at an all-time low. She even said that in 2001, the year Jamie was convicted, that Pitzel was spending way too much time on his boat and not enough time in the office, and that his public defender work suffered, he couldn't focus on it, and he had poor judgment. And when he got a divorce, he became obsessed with gambling and was drinking more. A longtime client named Jerry testified that he had been aware for the last 25 or 30 years that Pitzel had a severe drinking problem. And he had always expected at some place in time to read that a client would have accused him of misrepresentation because of being intoxicated. But he said he stayed with him anyways for his own criminal defenses, because he, you know, he was good at representing him. And his psychiatrist testified that he was a narcissist, he had OCD, he suffered from major depression and bipolar two disorder. He did not always comply with treatment, and he was an alcoholic, also addicted to gambling, and he said he was chaotic and had poor judgment. But what we can glean most from how Pitzel acted in court are from his own words during his sentencing speech. He said as a young lawyer, he reveled in cases where the verdict did not match the facts, like where a guilty person got off because it was due to his, quote, persuasive powers, charisma, and agile mind. After getting lost in alcohol, he said he could still function at trial because all he was required to do as a defense attorney was react. So he says he's been blessed with a quick mind. He thought he did not need to study. And he said people were puzzled how he could still do such a good job arguing to the juries after spending so much time in the tavern, and it made him proud. When he went downhill, he said he wasn't a bad man, not lazy, but his life just went wild and his house of cards just came down. So his own words are very telling, almost like a confession of what he did in Jamie's trial where he was unprepared, only reactive to witnesses and actually proud of his performance. It seems to me uh, he really did think that he had persuasive charisma that would work in Jamie's favor. And he just thought he didn't need to do trial preparation. He could just be a drunk outside of the court. Uh, that delusion cost Jamie his life. And Pitzel still wouldn't give into it even after the conviction. It's terrible because this issue went all the way to the Supreme Court. And they still refused to consider that Pitzel's alcoholism affected the outcome of Jamie's trial as recently as in 2018.
0: I would encourage everyone to read his sentencing hearing. It's long, but it's it's incredible. Even there's so many things that would just take so, so much time to even go over. He talks about in that sentencing hearing how he was under high pressure because he was doing a murder case and how his wife had left him. Now, Maureen Kevin, who I mentioned earlier, the mitigation specialist, stated in her affidavit that Riley didn't seem to be in charge, that he had had a stroke. And that Pitzel didn't seem to be up to doing the trial, both either physically or mentally, and that he never seemed prepared. When she talked to him about the case, he seemed to only have superficial knowledge. She actually used those words. She said she saw him looking at discovery and then questioning witnesses and where he didn't have any, even have any notes. She said that at one point in the trial, there was something going on that kept them there at night. And there was a question that needed to be answered and and no one could find Pitzel, but he eventually showed up and smelled like alcohol. She also said that he would have two to three alcoholic drinks during lunches. And, and we know all of this was happening at the same time because he had mentioned to Maureen that he was separated from his wife and living with his parents and that his sister had accused him of stealing a ring from his mother to finance his gambling habit. As the judge stated in the episode all of this was pre-trial and that's the incredible thing this is new evidence and that's where we get the confusion about ineffective because they're saying that it's res judicata that it's it was raised at direct appeal so it doesn't matter but all of this happened afterwards so that's that's where it gets a little bit muddy and confusing about the ineffective assistance of counsel I don't know what you have to do. I see cases where the attorney has an affair with a detective or something like that, and it just gets thrown out. Little tiny things, you know, and it just gets thrown out. But I mean, he has documented evidence of confessions, like you said, Leslie, in his own his own sentencing hearing. And it doesn't get turned over for ineffective assistance of counsel. I will never understand that.
2: It's a very difficult argument. This, With this case here, with everything we know, it seems impossible that this case doesn't meet the standard. I agree. Leslie, Jamie mentioned that his sentencing hearing only took one hour. Then we hear that Pitzel got a three-day hearing for his own criminal conviction. What kind of privilege do you think Pitzel was afforded?
5: Well, during Jamie's trial, the state called 43 witnesses and the defense called 15. So they only called a third of who they could have for Jamie. But in Pitzel's hearing, he called 12 witnesses over the course of three days and collected 60 letters of support for the judge to consider. He was facing 30 years in prison and the judge ended up giving him 10 years. And he did say that Pitzel should have known that was coming. But he did really pay him a lot of lip service during the sentencing speech. The judge said he didn't see evil in Pitzel's eyes, but demons that were responsible for his crimes. And he actually said that he did a lot of good in the world. And many people were found innocent thanks to him that probably wouldn't have been with a lesser attorney. He did give him the 10 years, but recommended him for minimal security prison. That privilege is just astonishing when compared to the raw deal Pitzel gave Jamie. Jamie wrote the judge numerous times to complain about Pitzel and his lack of regard, his inability to properly represent him, and he was completely ignored. But this judge reads all 60 of Pitzel's letters and says how touched he was by them and compliments him through the sentencing. It's just maddening, and I can totally see why Jamie finds it incredibly offensive.
0: You mentioned Riley's impairment earlier. Could you give us an an idea of your perception of his impairment? He
1: couldn't really talk very well. He he wasn't taking notes. He wasn't talking very well. He was we would talk about something and the next time I would you know, I would talk to him, you know, he didn't remember what we were talking about. I would tell him about a witness. You know, this witness here, you know, is in, 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 in you know, we need to talk to this person, we need to talk to that person. But the next time I talk to him, I'd be like, did you talk to this person or that person? He'd be like, who? And I'd be like, this person or that person? He'd, what do we want to talk to them about? It was like I was a dog chasing my tail around in circles. He just didn't, couldn't grasp what it was that I was talking about when I was having the post-trial motion where I was trying to argue against the ineffectiveness of of Pat and and Frank. I asked Bernardi, I was like, Pat Riley had a stroke, man, you know, and in hindsight, there there, there are just certain things that, you know, when you look at it in hindsight, you, you wish you would have done differently. Judge said, well, I called around and I asked some of the people that Pat practices law with or around and to make sure that you know he was good to go. And, and I wish I would have picked up on that at the time because I would have been like, wait a minute. So you're saying that in the beginning, you didn't know whether or not, you had a doubt in your mind about whether or not he was going to be good enough to try this case. So you had to call around in a first-degree murder case where the death penalty is still on the table. You're calling around to these other lawyers, whoever else you were trying to check up on, to make sure that this guy was good to go. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the the best you could do with hitting me an attorney is to is is to, to call around and, and, and see if this guy's, you know, stroke hadn't hadn't have affected him. Had I have thought about it at the time, I would have got my my paper and, and, and my pen out and I'd have said, Okay, who were these judges or, or lawyers or whoever it was that you were calling around Oh my God, I wish I would have thought about that. And even today, I know that retired Judge Bernardi is practicing law in McLean County. I, I would welcome you, Mr. Bernardi. Who did you call? Who did you call to check up on Pat Riley to see whether or not that stroke had affected him beyond the point of being an effective attorney? I'd really like to hear if uh, you'd like to share.
0: So how many witnesses did your attorneys interview?
1: I don't think they interviewed any prior to trial. None. I don't think they talked to one witness prior to trial. The witnesses that they called, not one. They didn't talk to any of them.
0: So they didn't talk to Pilo. They didn't talk to Martinez. They didn't talk to Carlos Luna. They didn't talk to Juan Luna. They didn't try to investigate any of that stuff. No Gutierrez. No. And then none of the none informants. Of none of
1: them. They didn't go... And, and they could have. They, they, they could have, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a murder case... And, and you're a witness, I mean, they, they have to, subject, you know, submit themselves to a pretrial interview. I don't know if that's how it was back then. I know it is now. Yeah, they didn't try to talk to anybody. When Susan got on the stand, Susan testified for me, my co-defendant testified. When she got on the stand, Frank leaned over to me and said, what do I want to get out of her? What do we want her to testify to? And this is, this is she's on the stand. She's been sworn in. The jury's in the box. The courtroom is full of people and he leans over to me and says, what do we want to get from her? And I, you know, I just really wanted to get from her the, the level of pressure that the state had put on her to try to get her to, to testify against me. All the things that they had done to her over the period of a year, year and a half to try to get her to testify against me and all the deals that they were offering. You know, they were gonna just completely let her go.
0: I don't think that came up at the at her when she testified in your trial. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Of course I'm I'm telling you, that's what I wanted them to to, to, to bring out and they didn't bring none of that out. None of it.
0: So did Nothing. he tell you why he didn't why they didn't interview any of the witnesses? Was that a trial? Strategy thing, or did they just never talk about it at all?
1: Oh no, we we at that point it, the the relationship was so tenuous that you know we weren't uh, we weren't having nice conversations about well why didn't you guys go talk to anybody why didn't you interview any of the state's witnesses why didn't you you know we at that point it, it our communication was not civil I guess you know I mean they showed up. The night before I was to be sentenced, with okay, you're being sentenced tomorrow. We need to get our mitigation together. I mean, the night before, and I just basically and, and I just basically told him. I said, you know, well, why don't you just wing it like you did my trial? <laughs> oh my
0: god! I'm sorry. I, it's so bad. I mean,
1: that's what I told him. I'm <laughs> serious. you could ask. You could ask Maureen, Kevin. Maureen, Kevin was sitting in the visiting in in the attorney room with me, and I said. I heard Pat Riley's voice out in the hallway and I said Pat Riley's here and she's like no he isn't and I'm like yes yeah, he is and sure enough they came in there and they're like we gotta get this together you know you, tomorrow's your sentencing. you know we gotta get this together and I'm like why don't you just wing it just wing it like you did in my trial and uh you know <laughs> showing up the night before they were already winging it I mean that's what it was and that's how it happened and that's you know?
0: how they
1: got away and, with it uh, That's how they got away with it. That's
5: right. In this episode, we introduced you to Jamie's defense team, the motivated and resourceful group of people who first advocated for him while he was facing the death penalty, and then the broken down pair he was left with after the death penalty was taken off the table. What a relief, right? Jamie lost his life due to a wrongful conviction, driven by faulty eyewitness identification and corruption. But the two who were supposed to take the wheel, the two who were personally compensated $60,000 to, they winged it. You heard it. A medically disabled man and an impaired narcissistic alcoholic repeatedly insulted and rejected Jamie. They literally tried to abandon him right before sentencing. His pleas for intervention went unheard by McLean County, and he still serves his natural life sentence today. If you have any information that could help Jamie, Please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. Jamie participated in a lineup for this crime, spoke to detectives, and took a stand at his own trial. His words about his past were rewritten and used against him to claim involvement with this murder. How did they get away with this? That's next time on snow files.